Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we continue our study through Romans, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Groaning for Redemption and Exulting in Christ. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, as we continue to look through verses 14 through 25. turn and got some stuff to pass along. Um, I had intended to continue talking about uh, the fact that we're going to be choosing some deacons here, um, but need to put that on hold for this week. Some more stuff has gone down. 2020 is the gift that just keeps on giving. controversies and such. Um, So we were excited to kind of help society keep moving forward with progress and stuff by doing the back to school bash. We were excited to be having an event and things there, but then our very county became the hot spot in the state. So we have deemed it wise to cancel for this year. All three of us who were on that team just did not feel comfortable moving forward with it and such. So we are going to forgo that. We were disappointed about it. But something else uh, that we do need to talk about, um, at the absolute height of all of the controversy in society over mask, a mandate was given beginning tomorrow. Most of you have probably seen this. So I've had numerous folks ask me, what are we going to do as a church? So here's the official word for the next 15 minutes until it changes again. Um, I do very much uh, respect our governor. Uh, And not just because the Bible commands us to respect the position, because the Bible does. Uh, But I have interpreted his decisions and such as to be one who wants to do uh, work in wisdom and for the good of the people and such. So I I have respect for him there. There really is a great deal of debates in society over the legality of the measure. I'm not going into that. That's not my concern right now. Um, But actually, one of the specific sentences in the mandate, subheading O, if you want to look at it for yourself, excludes mask, uh, that it is not a mandate during religious services. Religious services are exempt. So that at least deals with the legality of the measure. But I also want to say this. Realize that some amongst our church family We are all seeing this different and it is not black and white and realize that some amongst us are going to feel strongly in various ways. Some are gonna want to wear a mask. Others are gonna be vehemently opposed to that kind of thing. We need to have the kind of atmosphere where folks can follow their conscience in an atmosphere of grace and patience that no one is made to feel dumb or anything for what conclusion they come to there. You know, in Romans 14, We have one of those passages that addresses Christian liberty and some of just basically controversial areas. Would highly encourage to take a look at Romans 14. It deals with things like the drinking of alcohol amongst Christians, the eating of various kinds of meat and such. There's a whole chapter dealing with these matters and one of the biggest issues that we're told there is It is not for us to judge or have a condemning kind of spirit in there. But one of the most important statements in that chapter is that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Well, the kingdom of God is also not mask and social distancing. We're we're going to see some of these things in different kinds of ways. And Jesus's prayer for the church is that we would have unity. Uh, Jesus's prayer is that we would have unity as the father, son, and spirit have unity. You know, when we look out at what's happening 
in culture right now. So I'm you know, sharing my interpretation here. I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, but reading the scripture and looking at society, this is, the, this is my interpretation of what is happening, what God is doing. I'm convinced that God is bringing a judgment, not an ultimate kind of ruinous judgment, not necessarily all throughout the Bible. We see him send smaller kinds of judgments, but God is also purging. He's purging his church. God is making his church holy. And one of the ways he's doing that is by removing those who are not truly following Christ, but also realize he is also purifying his people. Those who are in Christ. Purifying is a season of testing. It's hard because it's meant to be hard. You know, when we feel all of the turmoil and the chaos pressing on us and there is agitation and frustration with everything that's happening and all the stuff that's going there. The reason why it's difficult is because it's meant to be difficult. It's ordained to be difficult by our God. That's what testing is. So my exhortation and encouragement to us is let us be faithful. Let us endure. Part of the way that we will be faithful and we will endure is by working for peace amongst believers. Let's model for the world how to have right unity. Let's model for the world about how to disagree, but to do so from a heart of loving kindness. In no way would I ever say, let's just not talk about it. We have to. These are things that have to be talked about, but there's a way to talk about them in a, in a spirit of grace and patience. Let's model that for the world um, and let's endure through these things. All right. Let's turn to Romans 7. And let's begin in verse 14. I'm going to read the passage and then I will pray. Uh, Romans 7, beginning in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And then notice these last two verses. This is where we'll spend, we'll finish up here today and spend time meditating on this. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Let's pray. Merciful God, I ask that you will send us your spirit. Lord, over and over as we have studied this, one of the things that has stricken us, oh God, is just how weak our flesh really is. And so God, we just collectively admit before you, if you don't help us, there is nothing good gonna happen here. We need your spirit. We need you to come and give help.
to empower, enable, for you to cast light on your word, for you to open eyes, transform hearts, to bend our knees before you, oh God, please give grace, give us understanding. So we, a bunch of people claiming the name of Christ are drawing near and saying, oh God, glorify your name, please hallow your name, cause us to fear and tremble and treat you as holy because we see your truths. So please, oh God, work so that we are transformed. I pray, Lord, that this morning someone would be born again as they hear the gospel, as they encounter your truths. Please work for everything that we need, what every soul needs. Please show us, oh God, give me help to Carry the food to your people to, to feed. Just explain what's here, O oh God, without getting in the way. Please bless. We ask this through Christ. Amen. In ancient times, there was a tribe that actually lived near Tarsus, where the apostle Paul was from. And this tribe carried out a sentence on a murderer, um, but in a pretty cruel kind of way. You know, we, we've seen the law of God demands that intentional murder ought to receive the death penalty. But this tribe carried that out, but they did it in a cruel kind of way. They took the murderer and they bound his body, lashing it tightly to the body of the man he had murdered. So that as the dead body decayed, the infection spread from the dead body into the living body and eventually killed him, which of course took a period of time. Some actually think that Paul may have had that image in his mind when he wrote the conclusion of Romans 7 here. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Now, whether or not Paul had that in mind, we don't know for sure. Apparently, it was a known account. But regardless, it makes a fitting illustration, if not a graphic one. But I've told you before, God has put that graphic illustration in the world for a reason. That death brings the decay that it does. It's a fitting illustration for how we are bound to sin. Bound to a body of death and how we ought to groan to be rid of it to be rid of the influence of the flesh which continually infects us. The Christian is to groan for our redemption. As we've studied through this passage, 14 to 25, numerous times I've been using the word lament. Uh, Paul is, you know, he's showing us Christians how to do something here. He is lamenting the sin that remains, the indwelling sin still in him. But along with this lament, we also see him doing a couple other things. And we will see that in the conclusion of this passage. Paul is not only lamenting, he is also groaning. He's groaning groaning for redemption. And the pinnacle of that groan comes in verse 24. Look how he cries out there, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? This is a soul that is distressed, that is anxiously awaiting the kingdom of God, the glorification of his body, the removal of what is dishonoring to God. He then follows that groan with the great conclusion of the chapter with exultation. He laments, he groans, 
and he ends at the pinnacle of Christian worship. We worship God in many ways and with many attitudes. So repentance and grief over sin is worship that is honoring to God. But where God always wants to bring us is through these stages is eventually to come to exult in Christ, to rejoice exceedingly in what has been accomplished on our behalf. And so he concludes the passage with verses 25. And then I am convinced that chapter eight, verse one belongs with verse 25 there. So thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he goes into eight one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So do you see the crescendo? Uh, do you see the building of worship? It's like we're taken through stages of almost, you know, something to model. I don't believe almost, I believe it is a model for us in worship. All right, these, isn't the, these aren't the only thoughts of worship, but this must be a regular part of our worship. That in grief over sin, confession of sin, realizing our ugliness before God, we groan for redemption and then rejoice in the hope that we have. So 25 and 8, 1, I, I believe belong together. R.C. Sproul says this chapter division must have been made by a circuit preacher riding on horseback after the sun went down, okay? Which is to say he believes there shouldn't be a chapter break there. I, I can see why there, why there might be a chapter break for ease there, but understand the thoughts are connected. The crescendo of exaltation belongs together. And so this passage models, models worship for us. So I'm going to finish out this section and I'm, I'm going to do it like this, two, two parts. Um, we've studied in 14 to 25 and what I've been doing is um, drawing out points and uh, here and there showing you, look at the truth in this verse or that truth, but we've not yet walked through all of the verses to see the details of every one. So I'm going to finish out the details we've not yet looked at. That'll just be the first part just making sure we understand the full flow of thought. And then the second part, I'm gonna end by just preaching 24 and 25, the groaning and exulting of Christian worship, the heart attitude that we should have. So first part, let me walk us through the verses here. Look at verse 14 again. So he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Now, when he says this here, law spiritual, I am flesh. There's something that we need to make sure we, we do not misunderstand. There is an error that actually is, comes out of a bigger heresy that has been around for thousands of years. And if we're not careful, we could come to some wrong ideas here. So there's a heresy that has been around for thousands of years called Gnosticism. We actually see it addressed in uh, some of the letters to churches in the New Testament, particularly look at the book of Colossians after I tell you Sodom what I'll tell you sometime and look and see how it is addressed there. But the, the heresy of Gnosticism, it had a lot to it, but here was one of the major points of this heresy. It was the idea that all that is physical and material is evil. So everything that is of this earth, it's all evil. The body is 
evil. Okay, and the only thing that can be good is what is spiritual, the soul, the mind, the heart, those kinds of things. Look, that is still around today. Some of those, you know, not the full heresy, but some of the variations of the error is still around today. Uh, when people come to those conclusions of things like all pleasure is bad for your, your body to have enjoyment, that's evil. That's Gnosticism, okay? It, it's, it's not the fullest thing, but it's a version of it. How monastic communities got started. Uh, they got started in efforts to deprive the body, to abuse the body, to discipline the body in harsh kinds of ways. Why do we have certain periods of church history where somebody climbed up on a pole and sat there for long durations of time to abuse the body. It's this idea right here, like the body is evil. Well, you could see at first glance how there are some places of the Bible that we could come to that misunderstanding. But, I, but let, me, let me make this clear here. Um, it is a misunderstanding to think of all that is physical to be evil. So for instance, Paul addressed this with the Corinthian church because they had some misunderstandings along these lines. And one of the things that Paul tells them is, look, God made your body. He didn't make it evil, okay? The body is not evil in and of itself. But what the Bible will often do is it uses the flesh and the body in a figurative kind of way to speak of the sinful corruption that is within us. Um, but you also need to know that there are times that the Bible speaks of the flesh in a good kind of way, okay? We could probably all think of some, like Jesus, the Son of God in his incarnation came, this is John's language, in the flesh. Same Greek word, sarks there. But we understand that oftentimes the Bible will use this in a figurative kind of sense to speak of the spiritual, uh, sinful corruption of the flesh. Um, and we also see numerous times where the spiritual side of us, the soul, the spirit, the mind is spoken of as depraved and sinful. So you can't just say body bad, spirit good. This is figurative kind of language. So we might think of it as Paul is saying there in verse 14, the law is heavenly but I am low. I am of sinful flesh there. What he is saying is it is above me. It is something that I am not able to attain to. I am of flesh and in bondage to sin. Now hang on to that language because that can seem confusing. We'll come back to that in a second. Then in verses 15 to 20, now this is what we, we talked mostly about last Sunday. Look at it there. He goes through for what I'm doing. I do not understand. I'm not practicing what I would like to do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. We noted the fact that there is this conflict of desires that I have part of me that wants to serve the law of God and part of me that is serving the law, the power of sin. And he continues down through there. We see verse 17, which we talked about. So no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. We see that the truest you is your deepest desire. Justification, the work of God in conversion, the miracle of God in conversion brings a change of our deepest desire, changes us at the most root level. And so now we have become one who is in submission to God, but yet we still have this conflict within us. But then jump down to verse 21 there. I find then the principle that evil 
is present in me. Evil is present in me. Now, chapter six told us that the Christian is no longer a slave to sin, but we are told that the evil remnants still remain. Um, you might think of a semi driving down the interstate with carrying a toxic waste in a tank. It crashes and spills and toxic waste begins to pour out all alongside the road and going into the grass and the woods and things. And people come and try to clean it up. But as all the while they're trying to clean it up, more just keeps pouring out. Justification might be like the moment that the semi is turned upright and then is pulled away. What was bringing the greatest amounts of flooding coming out of it has been removed, but there's still this remnants all around still causing its effects that stays. And then 22 and 23, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law. And remember, we've, we've seen the Bible uses this word law, not always as a list of rules, but as a, a power, a principle. I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. And look at this, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. More of this tension. So do you see some of the tension between chapter six and chapter seven? Chapter six said, you're, six said, you're no longer slaves to sin. And now chapter seven says, I'm a prisoner of sin. Which is it here? Well, again, this is more of the difference between the legal and the practical. Between what we have been made officially versus what we're able to carry out in our lifestyle. All right, imagine a high school kid who got named the starting quarterback. It's first game of the year. And the coach tells him before the game, go be a leader out there. Now, just imagine for a second if that young player, he looked at his coach and said, what do you mean go be a leader? I'm already the leader. I'm already the quarterback. We know what the coach means by that. What the coach means is, yes, you have been officially put in a position, but now I'm telling you go live out the position you have been put in. There is technical and then living it out. So Christian, you have been freed from sin legally. You have been put in the position of son of God, daughter of God. We have been united to Christ. We have been set free. You have been declared righteous. The instruction of God now is go live out the position you have been put in officially. So if you remember back in chapter six, we talked about the difference between the indicative and the imperative, the indicative is, this is what has been done, this is who you are, this is officially what God has made you. This is what's written down in eternity. But now we are to go live this out. So here's the reality of where we are. As justified Christians, we are no longer slaves to sin. We're retired from that. But practically speaking in life, when it comes to how we behave and think and the attitudes of our hearts, we still struggle to live out the position. We, like the quarterback, may struggle to go be the leader on the field and he needs to grow into that. We are in the process of growing into the position we have been put in. So Colossians 3.10, listen to this. You have put on the new self, 
who is being renewed. That's speaking to believers. If you are not in Christ, this is not a promise to you. You who are in Christ, listen to it again. You have put on the new self who is being renewed. But then Ephesians 4 says, lay aside the old self, be renewed, and put on the new self. You hear the difference? Somebody could ask, all right, well, which is it? Have I put it on or do I need to put it on? Am I being renewed or do I need to be removed, re renewed? And the answer is, you all know, yes. It's yes to both of them. There is a legal way that we have put off the old, put on the new and are being renewed. But there is a way in the practical life that we are to continually put off the old man and put on the new man. And what this passage is showing us specifically 14 to 25 is... In the doing of that, it's a real struggle. It is a real battle to live this out. So I, I think that those who read 14 to 25 and they say this can't be speaking of the justified Christian because it says things like prisoner of the law and under sin. It has to be speaking of somebody who's not yet saved. I think they're not seeing this great difference between the legal and then the living out the technical and the practical that we are shown in this. So in this passage is showing that in the living out of being renewed, living out the position we have been put in, it's, it's a real fight. It's gonna be a battle till the day that we die. So when you struggle, don't think you're the only one. Don't think there must be something more wrong with you than other believers. Oh, there's something wrong with you. But what's wrong with you is the same as what's wrong with all the rest of us. What's wrong with us is we are still in this flesh. We are bound tightly to a body of sin and one day we will be rid of it. And then come to verse 24. Wretched man that I am. This is the pinnacle of his lament and the pinnacle of his groan. Wretched man that I am. Helps us see where that line from Amazing Grace came from. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Friends, the gospel is God coming to wretches. And if I could just apply this as personally as I can to you, you are not going to come to the greatest levels of gratitude that God wants you to come to until you sing that line from Amazing Grace and you mean it down to the depths of you. Until there is amazement. God, I don't understand how you can look on a wretch like me and forgive. Until we're there, we will not worship in exaltation. Until we have grief over our sin, we will not groan. And until we groan, we will not have the exceeding joy in the gospel of what Christ has done. Paul feels it here. And it's a call out to the rest of us to see we must come to see this. The Bible is not over-dramatizing things here. The Bible is explaining reality as it is. You and I, we are wretches before the holiness of God. What needs to happen in our hearts is that we come to see it and we come to the realization of it. We look at all of this passage 
and we see. Human effort can never accomplish what we need. If God were to have left us to ourself, number one, before Christ, we never would have come to him. And if God did not come to us now as believers, by his spirit and continually pouring out fresh manna every morning of new grace, we would not be sanctified. What we're seeing here is, I mean, look at it. We're weak. We're weak. We're weaker than we think we are. It's one of the big realizations that happens in studying the Bible is just realizing, man, I really can't even breathe without the grace of God. I cannot obey a single command unless God supplies the grace and help for me to obey that command. One of the things that reading and studying God explaining reality to us in the scriptures is the realization of just where we would be if he did not give his grace. And thinking back through all of salvation and the, the power of God as every part of it. This past Wednesday, we studied Mark 10, the account of the rich young ruler. One of the things we saw in that passage is Jesus say how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know, easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. But then he followed it up with the impossibility of any soul being saved by human effort. Listen, human effort cannot accomplish what we need. And I don't just mean the sacrifice necessary because here's, here's part of the point I'm trying to make. If God in his mercy had sent Jesus to the cross in order to pay for, now this is not how it happened, okay? But imagine if God had sent Jesus to go to the cross to just pay for sin in general, to theoretically give the opportunity for everyone to be saved. Now, that's not how it happened. How it went down is Jesus went to the cross to die for a people who had been given to him by the Father, a people known before the foundation of the world. He purchased a people with his blood. But many kind of imagine this, that Jesus just went to the cross, not knowing what would happen, but just we'll just put it out there as a as an opportunity for people to be saved. If God's plan had gone to that point and Jesus had died, buried, resurrected, ascended into heaven, and then God said, OK, let's see what humans will do now. No one in history would have been saved because not one of us, not one of us would come to Christ in genuine repentance and faith unless God had sought us out, worked the miracle of the new birth. Listen to me, you do not accomplish the new birth. God works the new birth and opens our eyes to see. The Bible calls repentance and faith a gift of God, even the very faith needed to trust in Christ, we must be helped in, supplied by God. No one would be converted unless God came to us and then us as Christians. If God had saved us and then stepped back and said, all right, let's see how they do, we would live in continual defeat. God has given his Holy Spirit to come and aid us in daily grace so that we can be sanctified. So we can never say something like, oh, okay, it's not on me. God's going to do it all. Then we don't try. No, the way that it works is we give effort 
And then we learn that God is the one who inspired me in it. And I don't understand how it all works. And it's real confusing, but I know I'm supposed to go. And then as we do it, he comes and aids us and spots us and enables and strengthens us. Part of the reason why there is so much confusion over God's sovereignty and salvation is not studying places like Romans 7 where we see our inability apart from the grace and the help of God. Human strength is such that we would never be able to live out God's desire for us. We have sin that remains, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? And we see that answered in the last part here. This is the part I've been most excited to get to here. Verses 24 and 25, groaning and exulting. Let me start with a premise and then I'm gonna ramble about it a little bit. The Christian should groan. The Christian should groan to leave this body of death and be redeemed and enter glory and we should long for the kingdom to come. The man who is comfortable here is in an unhealthy place. When we come to a place, like in our hearts and in our thinking, that we're kind of like, you know, I kind of like it here. This is, this is good. You know, if I could just get this little financial thing taken care of or this little health problem, man, life would be good. It would be, it would be good. When we are in those places, we are in a place of spiritual unhealth. We are sojourners here. This is not our home. We should feel like sojourners. We should long for our home to come. This world is not it. We should not feel like it is our home. We should groan for redemption. Now let me talk about that a little bit. This world is at war. It has been since the garden. The Bible explains to us the realities that we are unable to see. It tells us about rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, thrones and dominions in the heavenly realm. These thrones, dominions in the heavenly places are waging war against the rule of God. And because they hate the glory of God, they hate you and every other soul of man because God has big plans for mankind. Angels, demons, and men all engaged in this war. You are in a war. Even if you have never realized it in your entire life, every single moment of your life, you are at war, and that's not a metaphor. You are at war. And what is at stake is this is not over saying, this is under saying things, if anything. It is over the absolute most critical of all issues. The war is over eternity. Worship. The glory of God. Souls. The war is over the purpose of existence itself. The point of the cosmos is for all creatures to glorify God. 
The point of the cosmos, everything was made for this. You were made for this. Angels were made for this. The stars exist for the glory of God. Electrons were created for the glory of God. All of this cosmos was created, everything to somehow glorify him. And those creatures that have been made with the capacity to worship, we were designed to worship. And this is the point of everything. This is summarizing everything. It was all designed to magnify the name of God. You were made for this. You were made to know him. You were made to delight in knowing him. You were made to love him, worship him, obey him, serve him, seek his will in every breath. All of history is defined by this purpose. Listen, every other agenda that is out there, and humans have thousands of them, it's all pushing pebbles with toothpicks. This is the great point of the cosmos. This world is in rebellion to God. And listen, in certain places in history, Satan's greatest tactic has, has been, and it has proven to be enormously effective, his great tactic has been to hide the war from you. To make us assume that life is peace. Life is all nice. It's all mostly well. It's all going to be fine. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry. For the last, I think we could agree, for the last, I'm just going to, 70-ish years, this tactic has been enormously effective. For the last 70-ish years, and, and by the way, the reason why I give that number is because when there are major sufferings in the world that everybody is aware of, nobody believes these absurdities. When there is a war, world war raging and people are dying, okay, and we all know it and we all see it, nobody falls for these absurd fallacies. But for this last season, Satan became incredibly effective at lulling people to sleep with the idea that all is fine. Life is mostly good. We're all at peace. It's all okay. Just a big message that we ought to just be giving everybody. It's just everything's okay. Let's just make money, build our castles, entertain ourselves, watch our TV, pursue your hobbies, make yourself happy. Which is all to say, this is the Bible's expression, let's eat, drink, and be merry. In the midst of that deception, God has risen up certain Christians who were able to see with a clarity beyond the others and have been calling attention to this war. And they have largely been laughed at and ignored. These believers who would herald out and, and call, believers would call the visible church. You know, when I say visible church, that does not mean everyone who was born again, but just the church that we see and we don't know who all is converted. These preachers would call out to the visible church in America, look at your Bibles, look at the war, look at what's going on, souls are at stake. And the visible church in America largely responded with louder music, flashier programs, greater distractions and justifications for why it's really okay just to live like this and build our castles in the sand. 
Do you see how effective Satan has been in this? Sleepiness has largely defined the American church. Let me ask you, before 2020 hit, because this has been a year of turmoil, that's one of the graces of God, by the way, when there's judgment, discipline, purging, and purifying, one of the graces that is given, we wake out of stupidities like that. We wake up to the reality of what's going on. Before 2020 hit, were you sleeping? Did you find yourself thinking along those kinds of ways of just like the world, all's fine, it's all, it's all good, just be happy, let's eat, drink, and be merry. It's a, it's a gift of God when he wakes us up. The reason why I paint all of this picture, the reason why I've, I've rambled on about this is, is to show this point right here. The Christian is supposed to groan. This is not our home. We're supposed to be longing. We're supposed to be aching. It's a bad thing when we're comfortable building castles in the sand. It's a bad thing when day after day rolls by and all we're thinking about is how we use our money and what we're watching on TV. We're living in a world that is blaspheming God. We're living in a world where souls are dying from the nations and entering an eternity of what is literally the worst torment that can exist. We are to groan. We are to groan for the kingdom to come. Jesus taught us to pray for God's kingdom to come. Romans 8 tells us that creation groans. It groans as a, a woman in labor, in pain, and longing for the joy to come. The last sentence, the second to last sentence of the whole Bible, Revelation 21 20, Jesus gives this beautiful promise Behold, I am coming quickly and then it is followed up with what basically is to be the great cry of all of the church all of God's people amen come quickly Lord Jesus it is right for us to want our redemption it is healthy and godly for us to be groaning, to feel like sojourners, pilgrims, travelers who are not in our home. In Psalm 96, we're told that when the Lord comes to judge, the heavens will be glad, the fields will exult, the trees of the forest will sing for joy, and the seas will roar in jubilation out of joy over the coming of the Lord, because even now they groan. Look over to Romans 8 with me, if you will, there for a second. Romans 8, in verse 18 there, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us who are in Christ. Look at 19. Creation anxiously longs, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 22, creation groans. And then look at 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Here's what the Holy Spirit helps us to do. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting 
eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, for we know that if the earthly tent, it's talking about our body there, that's what your body is right now, just a tent. It's gonna grow old, it's gonna wear out, it's gonna pass, it's a tent. That's not who you are eternally. So the tent, which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Do, do you groan, Christian? Do you long? Do you ache for what is your home? And do you groan, not only because your body hurts, and because you're tired of the chaos, which by the way, that is legitimate. The Bible shows it's legitimate, okay? You ever just get so sick of all this, it's like I'm ready to be in the kingdom of heaven? That is legitimate. But do you also groan because you're tired of dishonoring God? Do you also groan because you're ready to be done with sin? Ready to please God in just complete glorification? Paul's cry in verse 24 is a longing to be rid of sin, not just to be rid of pain, but to be rid of sin. Look, it's a corrupted heart that would want a kind of version of heaven where I got to be free of pain, but I kind of wanted to hang on to my sin or at least some of my favorite ones. And then lastly, he exalts. Back in 7 verse 25, he exalts, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's always the pattern, by the way. We glorify God through Christ by the help of the Holy Spirit. Over and over again in the New Testament, that's the pattern that we are shown. He exalts, he laments, he groans, and he exalts. This is a pattern to imitate. We glorify God by doing all of these things. So, so I ask you to listen carefully to this part here. If we never lament and have grief over our indwelling sin, we do not understand the sinfulness of our sin. And if we do not groan, we are failing to treasure the kingdom of heaven as we should. And if we do not exult, if we do not rejoice in the salvation that we have, we are preoccupied with trivialities. We must lament our sin, groan for the kingdom to come, and rejoice in the salvation that Christ has purchased. And that means even now, rejoicing in it because we are assured and confident it is coming, assured in hope. This is not all worship is, but this is a major aspect of worship, leading us to again and again glory in the gospel. This is why we never stop talking about it. So let me bring this to some final application. I want to think through these, these three things, lament, groan, and exult. To you, Christian, do you lament? Do you lament your sin? I, I get it. We got to be real careful. When asked an application question kind of like that, we could just respond to ourselves like, uh, yeah, okay, move on. No, let's think a little bit more deeply about it. Because, you know, for one, just because we have grief over our sin today as we should does not mean that we will tomorrow. There is continued work to keep our hearts in the right place. But do you lament your indwelling sin? 
If not, then seek to. Because this is a question we ask, all right? Well, pastor, what happens if I don't? What happens if my heart is not there? Well, seek to. Make diligent use of the means of grace. Here's what I mean by that. I got to do it briefly. It's not a whole other sermon. But the means of grace are all of those ways that God has given for us to approach him in worship. The means of grace are all of those spiritual disciplines that we're always talking about. God has free grace. It's yours. He promises it's yours if you'll come get it, if you'll show up and grab it. He will not withhold it from you. But he has made ways for us to take hold and receive that grace. It's all of the ways that we worship. So when we meet together corporately, there's a reason why we go through the things that we do. We read scripture, we pray, we give offering, we fellowship, we uh, have preaching, all of these things. What are these? These are means of grace. These are ways that we worship corporately. Families gathering together, private worship. If day in and day out, we are diligently making use of the means of grace. Our hearts are being transformed. Worship transforms us. This is what we're always saying. It transforms us. It brings us to the places of humility and godliness and repentance and gratitude. These virtues that we are to come to. So let us lament our sin. If it's not there, then ask God to help you. And by the way, with every one of these that I'm going to mention, this is the kind of stuff we're supposed to pray. These are the kinds of things to add to your weekly praying. Asking God, help me to lament. Help me to see my sin as I should. And then secondly, do you groan for redemption? Again, even if you are right now, not guaranteed you will tomorrow, there's continued worship work needed to keep our hearts in this place. But if we are not groaning, and we're all going to have those seasons, right? That's how the Christian life works. We come into these seasons where my heart is not in the healthy place I, I know it needs to be. When we're not there, we have to analyze and ask the question, why? Why, why, am, I, why am I happy? to just stay in a cursed world? Am I setting my hope on false securities? Am I obsessing myself with earthly indulgences and pleasures? Am I so indulging my flesh that I kind of come to try to live a bit of heaven on earth? Am I spending all my time just constantly thinking on the here and not setting my mind on what is above? Let's, look, one of the remedies for how to groan for heaven is think about heaven. Read Revelation 20 and 21. Read about the new heavens and the new earth. Bring, it, bring those images to stir in the mind to long for these things. When we are not groaning for the kingdom of heaven, there is something sitting on the throne of treasure in our hearts and it needs to be removed. Pray for God to expose it. Pray for God to remove it. Pray for God to bring our hearts to anxiously long. And do you exult? E-X-U-L-T. Do you rejoice exceedingly in God through Christ? Do you have amazement that God has let you be saved? Is your heart filled with gratitude? 
and wonder over the fact, I just am amazed, God, let me into his kingdom and rejoice over your coming redemption. Listen, the reason why, not saying it is the case with, you know, every one of us or even necessarily of this church. I'm just saying when we look out at the landscape, there are patterns that we see. And a lot of what we see in the visible church in America are some distressing patterns. The reason why that there is so much shallowness that abounds, why there is so little soaring, rejoicing in the gospel, the reason why there is so little passion for missions, the reason why when Christmas comes around, what's everybody talking about? Mythological creatures and presents, not that the Son of God became flesh and dwelt among men for our salvation. The reason why there is boredom with the gospel is because a weakness in understanding these things. When we do not see our sin rightly, we will not lament. When we do not lament, we will not groan. And will we do not groan, we will not rejoice. Christian Romans exist in the plan of God. This book was written to bring our hearts to sing, to bring our hearts to sing in worship. God is walking you through who he is, who you are, and what it took to save you from hell. It is meant to stir, to help us to understand the ugliness of our sin, understand the glory of what is to come, and the glory of what Christ has done. The Bible is not over-dramatizing the situation. It is explaining to us reality simply as it is. You were on your way to the worst possible destination in history. You have been saved by the most glorious salvation that could be conceived by an infinite God. And God is bringing you to the most glorious world of joy that could be designed by the God of glory. That's supposed to do something in us. That's supposed to bring worship. What an indictment when humans cheer like animals over ball games but are bored by the gospel. Listen, the angels around the throne of God never cease singing about the glory of the salvation that God has brought to men. Let us rejoice over it. Let us lament, let us groan, and let us exult. And to you who have not yet come to Christ to be saved, I know that you may find it strange that all of this, all that we're talking about, we're making such a big deal over sin. And here you see the Bible making such a big deal over sin because all around you in the world that's never talked about like that, maybe even churches you've gone to were so nonchalant about it all, you might be finding it hard to believe that God really is going to sentence souls to hell for sin. But what I beg you to do is see it in the word of God. This isn't just like what Baptists believe, like a peculiarity of us. This is what God says. God speaks from heaven and says, turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved for I am God and there is no other. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
come to Christ. You don't have to understand it all, but you got to know this. Jesus is the only one who can save me. Come to Christ, trust in him, cry out to him to save you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, help us to glory in our redemption. Father, help us that when we, when we say something like glory to God, Father, I pray that it would be spoken from a heart that really wants it. So we pray, oh God, that you would be glorified. We pray that your name would be exalted to the ends of the earth. We pray that you will bring the gospel to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, that souls would bow and that you would bring about your purposes. And Lord, we wanna be a part of it. We wanna be a part of it in that we worship you as we should. And we wanna be a part of it, oh God, in that we are helping out of our worship to make the gospel known. Help us to leave here and go into this week and to be evangelist. Tell others about the message of Christ. Intentionally look for those opportunities and use us, oh God. Please bless us as we leave and we ask all these things through Christ our Savior. Amen. You are dismissed. The Lord bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.